So uh, as we develop the strength of our perseverance in the practice as the winter retreat rolls on, then I thought I would shift gears a little bit and in the same vein as Sajjan Kurudamo talking about great disciples of the Buddha, I'm going to read the Angulimala Sutta this evening, which is uh, it's quite well done and I find quite inspiring verses. And then we'll go into some of the life of Lungta Mahabua as well, and some of his, some of Lungta Mahabua's life and practice. And uh, somehow he is a little bit similar to an Angulimala figure. And although there is a good narrative about Angulimala in the Great Disciples of the Buddha book, um, I decided just to read the sutta itself. It's not very long. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jetta's Grove, Anattapindika's Park. Now on that occasion, there was a bandit in the realm of King Pasenadi of Kosala named Angulimala, who was murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Villages, towns, and districts were laid waste by him. He was constantly murdering people and wore their fingers as a garland. Then, when it was morning, the Blessed One dressed and, taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Savati for alms. When he had wandered for alms in Savati and had returned from his alms round, after his meal he set his resting place in order and, taking his bowl and outer robe, set out on the road leading toward Angulimala. Cowherds, shepherds, plowmen, and travelers saw the Blessed One walking along the road leading toward Angulimala and told him, do not take this road, recluse. On this road is the bandit, Angulimala, who is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Villages, towns, and districts have been laid waste by him. He is constantly murdering people, and he wears their fingers as a garland. Men have come along this road in groups of 10, 20, 30, even 40, but still they have fallen into Angulimala's hands. When this was said, the Blessed One went on in silence. For the second time, for the third time, the cowherds, shepherds, plowmen, and travelers told this to the Blessed One, but still the Blessed One went on in silence. The bandit Angulimala saw the Blessed One coming in the distance. When he saw him, he thought, it is wonderful, it is marvelous. Men have come along this road in groups of 10, 20, 30, even 40, but still they have fallen into my hands. But now this recluse comes alone, unaccompanied, as if forcing his way. Why shouldn't I take this recluse's life? Angulimala then took up his sword and shield, buckled on his bow and quiver, and followed close behind the Blessed One. Then the Blessed One performed such a feat of supernormal power that the bandit Angulimala, though running as fast as he could, could not catch up with the Blessed One, who was walking at his normal pace. Then the bandit Angulimala thought, it is wonderful, it is marvelous. Formerly I could catch up even with a swift elephant and seize it. I could catch up even with a swift horse and seize it. I could catch up even with a swift chariot and seize it. I could catch up even with a swift deer and seize it. But now, though I am running as fast as I can, I cannot catch up with this recluse who is walking at his normal pace. He stopped and called out to the Blessed One, Stop, recluse! Stop, recluse! I have stopped, Angulimala. You stop, too. 
Then the bandit Angulimala thought, these recluses, sons of the Sakyans, speak truth, assert truth. But though this recluse is still walking, he says, I have stopped, Angulimala, you stop too. Suppose I question this recluse. Then the bandit Angulimala addressed the Blessed One in stanzas thus. While you are walking, recluse, you tell me you have stopped. But now, when I have stopped, you say I have not stopped. I ask you now, O recluse, about the meaning. How is it that you have stopped and I have not? Angulimala, I have stopped forever. I abstain from violence toward living beings. But you have no restraint toward things that live. That is why I stopped and you have not. Oh, at long last, this recluse, a venerated sage, has come to this great forest for my sake. Having heard your stanza teaching me the Dhamma, I will indeed renounce evil forever. So saying, the bandit took his sword and weapons and flung them in a gaping chasm's pit. The bandit worshipped the sublime one's feet and then and there asked for the going forth. The enlightened one, the sage of great compassion, the teacher of the world with all its gods, addressed him with these words, come bhikkhu, and that was how he came to be a bhikkhu. Then the blessed one set out to wander back to Savati with Angulimala as his attendant. Wandering by stages, he eventually arrived at Savati, and there he lived at Savati in Jetta's Grove, Anadapindika's Park. Now on that occasion, great crowds of people were gathering at the gates of King Pasenadi's inner palace, very loud and noisy, crying, Sire, the bandit Angulimala is in your realm. He is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Villages, towns, and districts have been laid waste by him. He is constantly murdering people, and he wears their fingers as a garland. The king must put him down. Then, in the middle of the day, King Pasenadi of Kusala drove out of Savati with a cavalry of 500 men and set out for the park. He drove thus as far as the road was passable for carriages, and then he dismounted from his carriage and went forward on foot to the Blessed One. After paying homage to the Blessed One, he sat down at one side, and the Blessed One said to him, What is it, great king? Is King Saniya Bimbisara of Magadha attacking you, or the Lichavis of Vesali, or other hostile kings? Venerable Sir, King Senia Bimbisara of Magadha is not attacking me, nor are the Lichavis of Vesali, nor are other hostile kings. But there is a bandit in my realm named Angulimala, who is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Villages, towns, and districts have been laid waste by him. He is constantly murdering people, and he wears their fingers as a garland. I shall put him down, venerable sir. Great king... Suppose you were to see that Angulimala had shaved off his hair and beard, put on the yellow robe, and gone forth from the home life into homelessness, that he was abstaining from killing living beings, from taking what is not given, and from false speech, and that he was eating only one meal a day, and was celibate, virtuous, of good character. If you were to see him thus, how would you treat him? Venerable Sir, we would pay homage to him or rise up for him, or invite him to be seated, or we would invite him to accept robes, alms food, a resting place, or medicinal requisites, or we would arrange for him lawful guarding, defense, and protection. But, venerable sir, how could such an immoral man, one of evil character, ever have such virtue and restraint? 
Now on that occasion, the venerable Angulimala was sitting not far from the Blessed One. Then the Blessed One extended his right arm and said to King Pasenadi of Kosala, Great King, this is Angulimala. Then King Pasenadi was frightened, alarmed, and terrified. Knowing this, the Blessed One told him, Do not be afraid, great king, do not be afraid. There is nothing for you to fear from him. Then the king's fear, alarm, and terror subsided. He went over to the Venerable Angulimala and said, Venerable Sir, is the noble lord really Angulimala? Yes, great king. Venerable Sir, of what family is the noble lord's father? Of what family is his mother? My father is a Gaga, great king. My mother is a Matani. Let the noble lord Gaga Matani Puta rest content. I shall provide robes, alms food, resting place, and medicinal requisites for the noble lord Gaga Matani Puta. Now at that time, the venerable Angulimala was a forest dweller, an alms food eater, a refuse rag wearer, and restricted himself to three robes. He replied, Enough, great king, my three robes are complete. King Pasenadi then returned to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and said, It is wonderful, venerable sir. It is marvelous how the Blessed One tames the untamed, brings peace to the unpeaceful, and leads to Nibbana, those who have not attained Nibbana. Venerable sir, we ourselves could not tame him with force and weapons, Yet the Blessed One has tamed him without force or weapons. And now, Venerable Sir, we depart. We are busy and have much to do. You may go, Great King, at your own convenience. Then King Pasenadi of Kosala rose from his seat, and after paying homage to the Blessed One, keeping him on his right, he departed. Then, when it was morning, the Venerable Angulimala dressed, and taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Savati for alms. As he was wandering for alms from house to house in Savati, he saw a certain woman in difficult labor, in painful labor. When he saw this, he thought, how beings are afflicted, indeed, how beings are afflicted. When he had wandered for alms in Savati and re returned from his alms round, after his meal, he went to the Blessed One. And after paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and said, Venerable Sir, in the morning I dressed and taking my bowl and outer robe, went into Savati for alms. As I was wandering for alms from house to house in Savati, I saw a certain woman in difficult labor, in painful labor. When I saw that, I thought, how beings are afflicted, indeed, how beings are afflicted. In that case, Angulimala, go into Savati and say to that woman, sister, since I was born, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well and may your infant be well. Venerable Sir, wouldn't I be telling a deliberate lie? For I have intentionally deprived many beings of life. Then, Angulimala, go into Savati and say to that woman, Sister, since I was born with the noble birth, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well and may your infant be well. Yes, Venerable Sir, the Venerable Angulimala replied, and having gone into Savati, he told that woman, Sister, 
Since I was born with the noble birth, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well and may your infant be well. Then the woman and the infant became well. So that's a uh, very, very famous Purita chant that is done to this day. It's a, it's a short Purita and we do it three times for uh, if women are about to give birth. And we do that in Thailand and have done it here as well. That's the Yatohang Bhagini Ariya Jatiya Jato, since the noble birth. Before long, dwelling alone, withdrawn, diligent, ardent and resolute, the venerable Angulimala, by realizing for himself with direct knowledge here and now entered upon and abided in that supreme goal of the holy life for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from the home life into homelessness. He directly knew, birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more coming to any state of being. And the venerable Angulimala became one of the Arahants. Then when it was morning, the venerable Angulimala dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Savati for alms. Now on that occasion, someone threw a clod and hit the venerable Angulimala's body. Someone else threw a stick and hit his body. And someone else threw a potsherd and hit his body. Then with blood running from his cut head, with his ball broken, and with his outer robe torn, the venerable Angulimala went to the Blessed One. The Blessed One saw him coming in the distance and told him, Bear it, Brahmin, bear it, Brahmin. You are experiencing here and now the results of deeds because of which you might have been tortured in hell for many years, for many hundreds of years, for many thousands of years. Then while the venerable Angulimala was alone in retreat, experiencing the bliss of deliverance, he uttered this exclamation, who once did live in negligence and then is negligent no more, he illuminates this world like the moon freed from a cloud, who checks the evil deeds he did by doing wholesome deeds instead, he illuminates this world like the moon freed from a cloud. The youthful bhikkhu who devotes his efforts to the Buddha's teaching he illuminates this world like the moon freed from a cloud. Let my enemies hear discourse on the Dhamma. Let them be devoted to the Buddha's teaching. Let my enemies wait on those good people who lead others to accept the Dhamma. Let my enemies give ear from time to time and hear the Dhamma of those who preach forbearance, of those who speak as well in praise of kindness, and let them follow up with kind deeds. For surely then they would not wish to harm me, nor would they think of harming other beings. So those who would protect all, frail or strong, let them attain the all-surpassing peace. Conduit makers guide the water, fletchers straighten out the arrow shaft, carpenters straighten out the timber, the wise man seeks to, the wise men seek to tame themselves. There are some that tame with beatings, some with goads and some with whips, but I was tamed by such a one who had no rod nor any weapon. Harmless is the name I bear, though I was dangerous in the past. The name I bear today is true, I hurt no living being at all. And though I once lived as a bandit known to all as Finger Garland, one whom the great flood swept along, I went for refuge to the Buddha. And though I was once bloody-handed with the name of Finger Garland, see the refuge I have found, the bond of being has been cut. 
While I did many deeds that lead to rebirth in the evil realms, yet their result has reached me now, and so I eat free from debt. They are fools and have no sense who give themselves to negligence, but those of wisdom guard diligence and treat it as their greatest good. Do not give way to negligence, nor seek delight in sensual pleasures, but meditate with diligence so as to reach the perfect bliss. So welcome to that choice of mine and let it stand. It was not ill-made. Of all the teachings resorted to, I have come to the very best. So welcome to that choice of mine and let it stand. It was not ill-made. I have attained the triple knowledge and done all that the Buddha teaches. It's the Angulimala Sutta. It's one of my favorites. And uh, there's a lot there in that. That's a very, very powerful. I find that to be a very, very powerful sutta. So see if there's any questions before we move on to the next part of the reading. Yeah, it's just a technical question. Like, what is the triple knowledge? And if it's the same as the threefold bliss that we chant? Uh, well, those are different. Yeah, the triple knowledge um, is different than threefold bliss. The, tr the triple knowledge is the, uh, the triple knowledge of that the Buddha attains in the night of his awakening. So the first watch of the night, attaining the knowledge of his own rebirths and through samsara and finding not being able to find a beginning. And then the second knowledge is the second watch of the night. That's seeing that all beings are in the same boat, that every being in the universe is passing away and re-arising according to their actions. So that's the insight into kama. And then the third knowledge the last watch of the night is the knowledge of how to destroy the defilements, the destruction of the asavas. And then the, the threefold bliss is the, uh, the bliss of happiness, the bliss of good health, and the bliss of nibbana. Thank you, Ajahn. The, the line, bear it, is one of my favorite in all of the um, suttas that I'm aware of. But I had a question, actually about when he goes to the woman in labor, and other than a literal story, does it have a particular significance to it? Like, why? I think it's very, very significant because uh, the Buddha is talking about the noble birth. He's saying it's a very interesting sut uh, part of the sutta and a very interesting vignette in the suttas that the Buddha is actually saying, you know, go to this woman and say, since I was born, I've never intentionally taken the life of any living being. And Angulimala is, how could I possibly say that? And the Buddha is actually, he's, uh, he's considering that time of when his, it's like when I'm, there's that very clear change that happens in Angulimala's mind when he meets the Buddha and he, he throws away his weapons and he completely changes and he, he knows he's never going to harm anything ever again. That's like his noble birth. So uh, I think that's a, a very powerful Reflection. Mm. Thank you. It's a yato hang bagini yariya yajati yajato na bijanami. It's been a while since I've done it. <laughs> the next, uh, it's a, it's a just like three, three or four lines, and uh, this is from the book Samana uh, Longta Mahabua, and he talks about his own life and his own coming to the practice and, and meeting up with Ajahn Man. Kind of, uh, kind of similar, kind of an Angulimala type, but fortunately never went down that road in his life. 
My mother was a wonderfully patient and devoted woman. She told me that of all the 16 children she carried to birth, I was by far the most troublesome in the womb. I was either so still in her stomach that she thought I must have already died, or I was thrashing around so violently that she thought I must have been on the verge of death. The closer I came to birth, the worse those extremes became. Just before I was born, my mother and my father each had an auspicious dream. My father dreamed that he had received a very sharp knife pointed at the tip with an elephant tusk handle and encased in a silver sheath. My father felt very pleased. And uh, Lungta Mahabua's father was known for being extremely fierce and uh, this kind of ferocious temperament. My mother, on the other hand, dreamed that she had received a pair of gold earrings, which were so lovely that she couldn't resist the temptation to put them on and admire herself in the mirror. The more she looked, the more they impressed her. My grandfather interpreted these two dreams to mean that the course of my life would follow one of two extremes. If I chose the way of evil, I would be the most feared criminal of my time. My character would be so fearsome that I was bound to end up being a crime boss of unprecedented daring and ferocity who'd never allow himself to be captured alive and imprisoned, but would hide out in the jungle and fight the authorities to the death. At the other extreme, if I chose the way of virtue, my goodness would be unequaled. I'd be bound to ordain as a Buddhist monk and become a field of merit for the world. When I grew up, I noticed that all the older boys were getting married, so I thought that's what I wanted too. One day, an old fortune teller came to visit the house of my friend. In the course of conversation, my friend blurted out that he wanted to ordain as a monk. The old man looked a bit annoyed and then asked to see the boy's hand. Let's take a look at the lines in your palm to see if you're really going to be a monk. Oh, look at this. There's no way you'll ordain. But I really want to ordain. No way. You'll get married first. I suddenly got an itch to ask the old man about my fortune, since I was hoping to marry at that time. I had no intention to ordain. When I stuck my hand out, the old man grabbed it and exclaimed, This is the guy that's going to ordain. But I want to get married. No way, your ordination line is full. Before long, you'll be a monk. My face went flush because I wasn't intending to be a monk at all. I wanted to have a wife. It was strange, really. After that, whenever I thought of marrying a girl, some obstacle would arise to prevent it. I even had a narrow escape after I ordained, when a girl I previously had a crush on came looking for me at the monastery, only to find I had just moved to another place. If she'd caught me in time, who knows? While I was growing up, I had no particular desire to become a monk. It took me a while to focus my attention on it. When I was 20, I fell seriously ill, so ill that my parents were constantly sitting by my bedside. My physical symptoms were severe. At the same time, a decision on whether or not to ordain weighed heavily on my mind. I felt the Lord of Death closing in on me. My whole life seemed to be in the balance. My parents sat anxiously beside me, not daring to speak. My mother, who was usually very talkative, just sat there crying. Eventually, my father couldn't hold back his tears. They both thought I was going to die that night. Seeing my parents crying in despair, I made the solemn vow that should I recover from that illness, I would ordain as a Buddhist monk for their sake. As though in response to my intense resolve, my symptoms began to slowly fade away. By dawn, they had disappeared completely. Instead of dying that night as expected, I made a full recovery. 
But following my recovery, the intensity of my resolve waned. My inner virtue kept reminding me that I had made a solemn promise to ordain, so why was I procrastinating? Several months of indecision passed, even though I kept acknowledging my failure to live up to my resolution. Why hadn't I ordained yet? I knew I had no choice but to ordain. I had to honor the agreement I made with the Lord of Death, my life in exchange for ordination. I willingly conceded that ordination was inevitable. I wasn't trying to avoid it, but I, need a, I needed a catalyst. That catalyst came during a frank discussion with my mother. Both she and my father were ple pleading with me to ordain. Finally, their tears forced me to make the decision that marked the path, my path in life. My father wanted me to ordain so badly that he began to cry. As soon as my father started crying, I was startled. My father's tears were no small matter. I reflected on my father's tears for three days before finalizing my decision. At the end of the third day, I approached my mother and announced my intention to ordain, adding the provision that I be allowed the freedom to give up the robes whenever I felt inclined. I made it clear that I wouldn't ordain if I was forbidden to disrobe. But my mother was too clever. She said that if I wanted to disrobe immediately after the ordination ceremony in front of all the people in attendance, she wouldn't object. She'd be satisfied to see me standing there in yellow robes. That was all she asked. Of course, who would be foolish enough to immediately disrobe right there in front of the preceptor with the whole village in attendance? My mother easily outsmarted me on that one. Soon after my ordination, I began reading the story of the Buddha's life, which immediately awakened a strong sense of faith in my heart. I was so moved by the Buddha's struggle to attain enlightenment that tears rolled down my cheeks as I read. Contemplating the scope of his attainment instilled in me a fervent desire to gain release from suffering. Toward that purpose, I decided to formally study the Buddha's teachings as a preparation for putting them into practice. With that aim in mind, I made a solemn vow to complete the third grade of Pali studies. As soon as I passed the third level Pali exams, I planned to follow the way of practice. I had no intention to study further or take exams for the higher levels. When I traveled to Chiang Mai to take my exams, by chance, Fenerbalajan Mun arrived at Wat Chedi Luang in Chiang Mai at the time I did. As soon as I learned that he was staying there, I was overwhelmed with joy. When I returned from my alms round next morning, I learned from another monk that Ajahn Mun left for alms round on a certain path and returned by the very same path. This made me even more eager to see him. Even if I couldn't meet him face to face, I'd be content just to have a glimpse of him before he left. The next morning, before Ajahn Mun went on his alms round, I hurried out early for alms and then returned to my quarters. From there, I kept watch on the path by which he would return and before long I saw him coming. With a longing that came from having wanted to see him for such a long time, I peeked out from my hiding place to catch a glimpse of him. The moment I saw him, a feeling of complete faith arose within me. I felt that because I had now seen an arhant, I hadn't wasted my birth as a human being. Although no one had told me that he was an arhant, my heart became firmly convinced of it the moment I saw him. At the same time, a feeling of sudden elation, hard to describe, came over me, making my hair stand on end. When I had passed my poly exams, I returned to Bangkok with the intention of heading out to the countryside to practice meditation in line with my vow. 
But when I reached Bangkok, the senior monk who was my teacher insisted that I stay on. He was keenly interested to see me further my Pali studies. I tried to find some way to slip away because I felt that the conditions of my vow had been met the moment I had passed my Pali exams. Under no circumstances would I study for or take the next level of Pali exams. It's my temperament to value truthfulness. Once I've made a vow, I won't break it. Even life, I don't value as much as a vow. So now I had to find some way to go out to practice. By a fortunate turn of events, that senior monk was suddenly invited out to the provinces, which gave me a chance to leave Bangkok while he was away. Had he been there, it would have been hard for me to get away, because I was indebted to him in many ways and probably would have felt such deference for him that I would have difficulty leaving. But as soon as I saw my chance, I decided to make a vow that night, asking for an omen from the Dhamma to reinforce my determination to leave. After finishing my chants, I made my vow, the gist of which was that if my going out to meditate in line with my earlier vow would go smoothly and fulfill my aspirations, I wanted an unusual vision to appear to me, either in my meditation or in a dream. But if I'd be denied the chance to practice, or if having gone out I'd meet with disappointment, I asked that the vision show the reason why I'd be disappointed. On the other hand, if my departure was to fulfill my aspirations, I asked that the vision be extraordinarily strange and amazing. With that, I sat down to meditate. With no visions appearing during the long period I sat meditating, I stopped to rest. As soon as I fell asleep, however, I dreamed that I was floating effortlessly above a vast celestial metropolis. Stretching beneath me as far as the eye could see was an extremely impressive sight. All the houses looked like royal palaces, shining brightly as they glittered in the sunlight, as though made of solid gold. I floated three times around the metropolis and then returned to earth. As soon as I returned to earth, I woke up. It was four, in the, four o'clock in the morning. I quickly got up with a feeling of fullness and contentment in my heart, because while I floated around the metropolis, my eyes were dazzled by many strange and amazing sights. I felt happy and very pleased with my vision. I thought that my hopes were sure to be fulfilled. I had never before seen such an amazing vision, and one that coincided so nicely with my vow. I really marveled at my vision that night. Early next morning, I went to take leave of the senior monk in charge of the monastery, who willingly gave me permission to go. From the very start of my practice, I was very earnest and committed, because that's the sort of person I am. I don't play around. When I take a stance, that's how it has to be. When I set out to practice, I had only one book, the Patimoka, in my shoulder bag. Now I'd strive for the full path and full results. I planned to give it my all, to give it my life. I wasn't going to hope for anything short of freedom from suffering. I felt sure that I would attain the release in this lifetime. All I asked was that someone show me that the paths, fruitions, and Nibbana were still attainable. I would give my life to that person and to the Dhamma without holding anything back. If it meant death, I'd die practicing meditation. I wouldn't die in ignoble retreat. My heart was set like a stone post. I spent the next rains in Chakarat district of Nakhon Rachasima province because I hadn't been able to catch up with Ajahn Man. As soon as I got there, I began accelerating my efforts, practicing both day and night, and it wasn't long before my heart attained the stillness of samadhi. 
I wasn't willing to do any other work aside from the work of sitting and walking meditation, so I pushed myself until my samadhi was really solid. One day, as my mind became calm and concentrated, a vision appeared in my meditation. I watched as a white-robed renunciate walked up and stood about six feet in front of me. He was an impressive-looking man of about 50 who was impeccably dressed and had an unusually fair complexion. As I gazed at him, he looked down at his hands and started to count on his fingers. He counted one finger at a time until he reached nine. Then he glanced up at me and said, In nine years you'll attain. Later I contemplated the meaning of this vision. The only attainment that I had truly desired was freedom from suffering. By that time I had been ordained for seven years, and it hardly seemed likely that two more years gave me enough time to succeed. Surely it couldn't be that easy. I decided to begin counting from the year I left to begin practicing. By that reckoning, I should attain my goal in nine years' time in my 16th Reigns Retreat. If the vision was indeed prophetic, then that time frame seemed quite reasonable. When I finally reached Venerable Ajahn Mun, he taught me the Dhamma as if it came straight from his heart. He would never use the words, it might be like that, or it seems to be like this, because his knowledge came directly from personal experience. It was as though he kept saying, right here, right here. Where were the paths, fruitions, and Nibbana? Right here, right here. My heart was convinced, really convinced. So I made a solemn vow. As long as he was still alive, I would not leave him as my teacher. No matter where I went, I'd have, him, I'd have to return to him. With that determination, I accelerated my efforts in meditation. Several nights later, I had another amazing vision. I dreamed I was fully robed, carrying my bowl and umbrella tent, and following an overgrown trail through the jungle. Both sides of the trail were a mass of thorns and brambles. My only option was to continue following the trail, which was just barely a path, just enough to give a hint of where to go. Shortly, I reached a point where a thick clump of bamboo had fallen across the trail. I couldn't see which way to continue. There was no way around it on either side. How was I going to get past it? I peered here and there until I finally saw an opening, a tiny opening, right along the path, just enough for me to squeeze my way through together with my bowl. Since there was no other option, I removed my outer robe and folded it up neatly. I removed my bowl strap from my shoulder and crawled through the opening, dragging my bowl by its strap and pulling my umbrella tent behind me. I was able to force my way through, dragging my bowl, my umbrella tent, and my robe behind me, but it was extremely difficult. I kept at it for a long time and, until I finally worked my way free. Then I pulled my bowl until my bowl came through. I pulled my umbrella tent and my robe and they came through. As soon as everything was safely through, I put on my robe again, slung my bowl over my shoulder and told myself, now I can continue. I followed that overgrown trail for another hundred feet. Then looking up, I suddenly saw nothing but wide open space. In front of me appeared a great ocean. Looking across it, I saw no further shore. All I could see was the shore where I stood and a tiny island sitting way out in the distance, like a black speck on the edge of the horizon. I was determined to head for that island. As soon as I walked down to the water's edge, a boat came up to the shore and I got in. The boatman didn't speak to me at all. 
As soon as I got my bowl and other things in the boat and sat down, the boat sped out to the island without my having to say a word. I don't know how it happened. It just sped out to the island. There didn't seem to be any disturbances or waves whatsoever. Gliding silently, we arrived in a flash, because, after all, it was a dream. As soon as we reached the island, I got my things out of the boat and went ashore. The boat disappeared immediately without my saying even a word to the boatman. I slung my bowl over my shoulder and climbed up to the island. I kept climbing until I saw Ajahn Mun sitting on a small bench, pounding betel nut, as he watched me climb toward him. Maha, he said. How did you get here? Since when has anyone come that way? How were you able to make it here? I came by boat. Oh ho, that trail is really difficult. Nobody dares to risk his life coming that way. Very well then, now that you're here, pound my beetle for me. He handed me his betel pounder and I pounded away. Chock, chock, chock. After the second or third chock, I woke up. I felt somewhat disappointed. I wished I could have continued with the dream to at least see how it ended. The next morning I went to tell my vision to Ajahn Mun. He interpreted it very well. This dream, he said, is very auspicious. It shows a definite pattern for your practice. Follow the practice in the way that you've dreamed. In the beginning, it will be extremely difficult. You have to give it your best effort. Don't retreat. The beginning part where you made it through the clump of bamboo, that's the difficult part. The mind will make progress only to slip back over and over again. So give it your best. Don't ever retreat. Once you get past that, it's all wide open. You'll get to the island of safety without any trouble. That's not the hard part. The hard part is here at the beginning. I'll leave it at that for today. About five or ten minutes for if there's any questions or comments. In Thailand, there's much more of a culture of dreams and visions and interpreting your experience, you know, what might happen in your life based on those things. And it's uh, find it's very similar to when you read, you might read about the Native American vision quest and the spirit world or the dream time, which is given incredible importance as to show, you know, what what kind of factors are there in the subconscious. And even the the Buddha, before his awakening, had different dreams that were importance of his of his awakening. So it's uh, something I think we can pay attention to as well. Sometimes there can be teaching dreams or dreams that are very symbolic of maybe issues that we might be, that might be occurring for us. So something good to pay attention to, I think, in the, in the course of our practice. Sometimes monks might have monastic dreams where they, uh, they refrain from breaking precepts, even in dreams. That's always a good sign. Sometimes like it might be a dream of you're about to eat in the afternoon and think, oh, wait, I'm a monk. I can't do that. And then, uh, but then you wake up and it's just a dream, but still the mind had that heriotopa to uh, refrain even in the dream. It shows the, the practice is being internalized. I understand the Tibetan tradition, there's dream yoga. And I was wondering if there's anything from the suttas or that's um, taught by the uh, monastics in this tradition. Ajahn Kurudama, do you know about dream yoga? I think it, it doesn't mean you sleep more. I think uh, it's actually you like wake up. I think I heard about you wake up at like different times of the night and you, know, you can 
be learn how to be more mindful of what you're dreaming. You set an alarm and you wake up at different times and you can write down your dreams and be more mindful of your dreams that, that you might forget if they're just happening in the completely in the middle of the night. Yeah, I think there are um, some traditions in the Tibetan tradition that, uh, you know, try and introduce uh, conscious dreaming so that, you know, you can actually be aware of your dreaming while you're dreaming and uh, manipulate a bit through the intention uh, some of the dream processes. Uh, but it, to the best of my knowledge, there's no, there's no mention of that in, in the Pali uh, teachings. It's not part of what, uh, at least in the original teachings, that the, uh, the Buddha emphasized uh, as, you know, anything that's worth pursuing uh, at this point. Yeah, although the Buddha talked about his own dreams before his awakening, he, there's no time that I know of that he lines out a practice of actually practicing with your dreams or trying to remember your dreams. The, yeah, it's interesting. I guess there is a, there, if I remember right, there is one passage somewhere, and I can't remember where, um, where somebody asks him or he's talking about the meaning of dreams. And he said, you know, it can be very, quite variable, you know, and sometimes there are, you know, uh, kind of predictions that come up in dreams or uh, it's, you know, foretelling of possible future events, often, you know, very symbolic, of course. Uh, and, you know, other times it's just kind of living through um, events of the day, kind of rehashing them in different ways. And then uh, other times it's, you know, due to what you ate before going to bed. It's just absolute chaos, yeah. just meaningless so, yeah. garble. So he's, 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 you know, he basically says there's a lot of different meanings to dreams depending on uh, the situation. Supina, supinata is the Pali word for dream. Supina nimitta is like a, images that come up in dreams. Okay, it's just past 6.45, so we can have a short break and then come back together for puja.